Hello, I'm Greg. Let's have an inappropriate conversation about being a radical moderate. Why radical and not just moderate? Going all the way back to the sixth inappropriate conversation, I've been throwing out this terminology on a pretty regular basis about being a radical moderate, someone who is not liberal, but not conservative, not part of the radical right or left, or really showing much in terms of an anarchistic tendency, but absolutely not being part of the middle as we know it in America today. Not a political pragmatist who you know, lives and dies by what one congressional maneuver turns out to be or who's in charge of the Democratic Party or the Republican Party. Ig- ignoring all of that you know, really reprehensible form of political pragmatism. But the difference between being radical and not being radical when it comes to being part of the middle or having a middle ground staked out is the uh, difference between being a disinterested centrist and being somebody who is truly engaged. A lot of times I look to the radical right in this country and wish that the conservative movement would moderate those people because the only ones who have any influence over the kinds of people who represent a form of Christianity you won't find in the Bible at all are either the conservatives, who theoretically should be bringing them down to earth, so to speak, um, insisting that they find um, the justification for their radical views about homosexuality and other things, that they find them in the words of Jesus. Because the only other influence on them is an influence toward pure anarchy. And in the last 12 months in America, when you look at some of the decisions that have been made, particularly on economic issues, by conservatives and liberals, What you find is the movement toward anarchy seems to be winning or seems to be carrying more weight. So as a radical moderate, I can't do much to influence the radical right or the radical left unless I am speaking in radical ways and addressing them where they are instead of ignoring them as some sort of quote unquote fringe. I don't know how you can ignore some of these folks as a fringe because my perspective, the odds are if you're going to see a Christian brought on to one of the cable TV shows to offer an opinion about a controversial social issue in particular, you're going to be dealing with the radical right. On occasion, you'll be dealing with the radical left at all, but the TV news people have a hard time finding mainline anything to talk to. And that, you know, of course, gives you a touch point of sorts. But the real way to make change on the right side of the political spectrum is if conservatives will speak to their more radical you know, partners in ideology. And the same applies on the left side of the political spectrum as well. You will not get a more moderate point of view from the radical left by shouting across the chasm from the radical right at them. They're going to find too many things in common. And the result of that is going to lead to some form of unpleasant anarchy. No, the influence has to come by those who have that touch point, who share that border, either ideologically or an approach. So by being a radical moderate, It enables me to engage in as much part of the political process as possible. I can speak to people who are more inclined to occupy, whether Wall Street, the church, the nation's capital, their state capital, the local shopping mall, whatever. 
I'm more likely to be able to speak to people who, who occupy if I understand why they're occupying or what their mentality is, what their impatience is about. I can't just ignore them or you know, come up with a platitude that rules them out. Well, they're engaging in behavior that's going to lead to violence. Therefore, they're bad because anytime somebody does something that's going to trigger a violent response, the, the person who did it is bad and nothing that they have to say makes any sense. Or in the, um, you know, perhaps in the area of immigration, I don't live close enough to the southern border of the United States to have to deal with this on a day-to-day basis. So I try not to speak too forcefully, knowing that I'm not really walking the walk of dealing with the impact of illegal immigration across all levels of society. But I do know that I've heard some answers that are far too, well, unacceptably radical. But the problem isn't being radical in and of itself. The problem is the ideology that's behind it. Because as a moderate, I'm sitting here in the middle, sitting here as somebody who has a perspective on American history and American politics that is not bent toward an extreme. I'm not on the curve of the circular political spectrum that I shared a year or so ago. I'm, you know, in a much more perpendicular line. And I think that's important because... Unfortunately, it's not just that so often people who are engaged in moderate politics tend to ignore everything around them, tend to have a bunker mentality. It's that they ask the rest of us to do so as well. I uh, got an email from a family member this past week where some really bad economic, some shoddy economics were being expressed. The idea of comparing um, a progressive tax scale to communism or socialism. And I wrote back, as I often do. And when I feel like the person is preaching and writing to a large audience, I don't ever really mind reply all. I know that there's a a form of thought on internet etiquette that suggests that using reply all is always confrontational and always wrong, or at least potentially rude. But to me, if uh, if the email that I've received is confrontational, especially if it ends with a question with what do you think, or, you know, what should we do about it? then uh, I, don't, I think that the person is trying to start a conversation and replying to that conversation to all the people involved in the conversation. Well, that's a radical thing to do, perhaps, but it's not rude. Uh, it's certainly in keeping. And that's what I did because I said, you know what, there's a difference between a, uh, a leveling of society, a communistic notion of everyone is being, quote unquote, made equal and the line between a flat tax rate and a progressive tax rate, because in my lifetime, America has never had a flat tax rate. And yet I don't think we have a perception that in the 1960s and 70s and 50s that we were a socialist nation under the iron fist of some sort of ideological dictatorship that had to be overthrown and order needed to be restored. We simply had a progressive tax rate, and it was nowhere near as aggressive in its curve as what you often see in Europe. So in some ways, it was even moderate by the standard of progressiveness. So if you view that any progressive tax rate is by its nature radical, then it was a radical tax rate. But if you don't view it that way, if you say, well, there's a flat tax and there's not a flat tax, but inside the realm of a tax that has a progressive scale to it, you can apply a standard of moderation to that as well. And I think that where we've been certainly in the last 20, 30 years is a, is a very moderate progressive tax rate. And it's ironic that you could hear um, somebody like Barack Obama make a proposal that is totally in keeping with things that you heard a generation before from President Kennedy or Johnson or from Dwight Eisenhower or candidates for president during that time. And the insinuation be that you know Barack Obama is now some crazy radical trying to destroy America. But we wouldn't use that terminology then or now about those other political leaders. So I wrote back 
I wrote back and responded. And what I got in reply from one person, uh, not a direct member of my family, but an in-law. So uh, uh, an in-law of an in-law, if that makes sense. So a couple generations or a couple lines separating from flesh and blood relatives, so to speak. But somebody who's part of the extended family wrote me back just to me and basically said, from now on, if you're going to reply, I'll take my name off of it. Now, I haven't had a chance to speak to my mother. And when I do, I'm going to ask her if more than one of those emails went out. Because if the email went out personally, one to me, one to the person who initiated the letter, one to my mom who replied to the letter, and in each one of those said, I I'm opting out in a personal face-to-face -face way, at least as much as possible via email, to not receive this kind of communication anymore, then, you know, bravo, I've got no complaint. But instead, what I think has probably happened here is that the person was more than comfortable getting the misinformation and did not want to hear the correction. I was not rude. I did not use foul language. I did not even use much of a controversial or a confrontational tone of voice. I simply stated some facts and bemused about why we can't comprehend these facts as well as we used to. In fact, I'll read you a little snippet of what it is that I wrote because I tried to tie this question of taxation and socialism into the way we handle the Occupy movement because I'm very amused by the people in my life who would have been more patient, even in the ugliest form of hippieism in the 1960s and early 70s, than they are about what's currently going on and people who are saying, listen, I object to the fact that we gave a ton of money to leaders of industry who then essentially squandered that money did not accomplish the goals that Congress had set out to be accomplished and don't even feel like they owe the country an apology for it. I understand the Occupy movement from that perspective. And so what I said was, well, first off, the, the original article essentially made the claim that if a professor of economics handled his classroom the same way that Barack Obama wants to change taxation, that nobody would ever learn anymore because Every student would get the same grade based on the average of everyone else's performance in the class. So if the if a bunch of students got a 100% on the test and a bunch of students got a 30% on the test and the average was a C, everybody gets a C. And after that happens one or two times, the best students in class are going to stop studying. Why bother? They're not going to get rewarded with an A. And the worst students in the class are getting no incentive to study. Why bother? They're getting a good grade whether they work hard or not. And eventually everyone's test scores will drop into a D or a failing mark because of that. And this was his explanation of taxation, to which I just simply responded that I don't believe that Barack Obama is planning a tax rate of greater than 100%. That if somebody, even in the most progressive proposals that have been put forward by the liberal wing of the Democratic Party, doubles his salary, he's still going to make more money as a result of it. He may not take you know 100% of that salary increase home. Because his tax rate is going to go up. He may not take as much home of his pay raise as he did the last pay raise he got, but he's still going to make more money. And that's where the analogy fell completely apart. But I also objected to the notion that the best students in class are going to stop learning. I thought that was an assumption that, that didn't make sense to me based on my classroom experience. That first, this couldn't have been a true story because I never had a single class in all the years of university that I took where students would agree collectively on anything especially not a question of politics, economics, or religion. But the other issue that I had was the assumption that the star student's only incentive was a grade. But then I thought to myself, you know what, maybe, maybe there's some truth in this example that was put out there. And maybe it helps understand the opposition perspective to the Occupy movement. Here's what I wrote. 
A star student is told that she has an opportunity to graduate with special honors if she completes a program that involves working for pay, not talking about any welfare here, but working as a graduate assistant and a tutor. So by tutoring her fellow students, she can get a special degree with honors. Her grades are secure, so there's no worry there, but the honors part of her degree would reflect how well she has been able to move her fellow students and the classroom experience overall in a positive direction. She flatly refused and is frankly outraged at being asked to do such a thing. It strikes her as some form of cheating and perhaps even an evil higher education version of socialism. Her professor realizes that for this student, her sense of success relies not merely on her own achievement, but also on the rest of her classmates' failures. In fact, she may have a dream where all future students for generations to come will fail as well, or at least fall well below her standard. She cannot and will not be asked to help anyone else to learn and grow. The Occupy movement is directly opposed to the female student I just described. In some ways, perhaps indirect, Obama's policies also oppose that student. And as a Christian, I find that student to be offensive to my values. Here's the problem, though. There is no evidence to suggest that Obama would take all of us to a socialist system where the earnings are leveled and the government taxes us to complete equality. There is plenty of evidence of a movement, more in the streets than in government, frankly, that would force companies who have been given huge handouts set up by the Bush administration and continued for a while by the Obama administration to take responsibility for that. It would force those companies to act rightly. Others who have benefited from the sacrifice of predecessors to establish utility grids or supply chain infrastructures are being asked to make a comparable sacrifice to maintain them for the future, to pay them forward. When those companies refuse, are they bravely aligning themselves with this fictional professor and the, against the forces of evil, against communism, against socialism? Or are they acting like the shameful and petulant valedictorian who wants her present and future classmates to fail? Oh, and by the way, what would Jesus do? What would Jesus have us do? Hi there, this is Rick Moyer, the host of the Take Him With You weekly podcast. My wife Amy and I talk every week about all sorts of cool geeky things going on around our house. Plus, we have some uh, positive words of encouragement and then a subject every week that is sure to uh, make you think a little bit and hopefully encourage you for the week to come. That's our goal. Visit us at TakeHimWithYou.com. You can also find us on iTunes. Just search for Take Him With You. I think you'll be pleasantly surprised. Thanks. So a member of my extended family sent me an email, personally and directly, saying, basically, I don't want to hear that kind of talk anymore. I'm okay hearing propaganda from one side of the issue, but I am not prepared to accept any response to that propaganda. And that there might be the difference between being a moderate and a radical moderate. Let's give her the benefit of the doubt and say that she is not some sort of political extremist, that she is a centrist, floating along, um, going with the tide, living in a very conservative part of the country. So even if she falls in the moderate realm, she's certainly on the conservative side of that spectrum, but just doesn't want to be confronted with anything that's hard, anything that's challenging, anything that feels confrontational, doesn't want 
to hear the argument. And a radical does. And a radical does because it is almost only in hearing the arguments. When it comes to issues related to things like you know, gay rights or immigration reform or the um, types of issues that are swirling around the Occupy movement, whether they be the way the police and the power structure in our communities deal with dissent, are we a different country than we were 30, 40, 50, 60, 100 years ago, or in the actual economic questions being asked? You see, we have companies in our country today where people at the executive level earn 70, 80, 90 million dollars a year as their salary, and the you know, average wage of the rest of their employees, including you know, highly paid middle management type employees, less than 50,000. The gap between the highest end and the lowest end in some corporate structures is wider than it has been since the dark ages. So when you look at that, you say to yourself, well, is there anything wrong there? Well, it's a private company and private companies can do what they want to do. The issue that I've got with it, though, is well, twofold. First off, where is the sense of responsibility, if not for the community overall, for the company's future itself? Or some of these companies mortgaging their very survival by paying things and rewarding things the way they do. But a better question to me is the question of whether or not these companies can assert a complete and full level of quote-unquote privacy. Have they incorporated themselves in a way that they're not truly American companies and therefore perhaps do not deserve the quote-unquote citizenship, the personhood that the United States Supreme Court has conferred upon them with the, uh, you know, with the agreement of political candidates like Mitt Romney? More to the point, have we as taxpayers covered some of the expenses that these companies would owe or would have to pay? Or have we paid taxes on our own backs that would protect them from any sort of tax burden or a portion of their tax burden because of the kind of benefits that states typically give to businesses to lure them to move from one place to another? In other words, the state is so interested in getting tax revenue from the people who make thirty, forty, fifty thousand dollars a year that they often exempt from taxation the companies or the heads of companies that are earning the actual quote unquote real money. So there's questions swirling around about the just the entire notion of what it means to be a private company when it comes to the reaction to taxation. But my question is more for the boards of directors. At what point are you as a drug company? At what point are you not putting money into research and development yourself because you're putting money into the hands of people who can't live in those means? At some point when your salary is $90 million plus a year, plus whatever perks and benefits you get, you actually can't live that way. It's almost impossible to spend that much money. It's beyond a Brewster's millions quandary, in other words. It would be much better if there was a different way of rewarding a different way of incentivizing people, and a lot of that additional money, I'm not saying it needs to go and, and raise the rates of everybody who works in the mailroom, but at what point is that where the research and development comes from? That these are, again, companies that will tell you on the one hand that the drugs need to cost so much in America that the government actually has to step in through programs like Medicare and Medicaid and finance the drugs. This is not some future Obama health care plan. This is what happens today. This is what has been happening virtually my entire lifetime when the same drug has not sold at the same rate in Canada and Europe and in other countries. Now, I'm all in favor of giving the drugs away to the poorest third world type nations in the world where they're needed and paying more myself. It just happens to sound a lot like the kind of, quote, socialism, unquote, 
that members of my family complain about in emails. The other argument that I found so amusing when it comes to the way drug companies protect their revenue for the use of research and development by charging different rates to different customers was the notion that if people who live close to the Canadian border crossed the border and bought prescription drugs there, purchased the same retail advertised on TV prescription drug, that the U.S. government had to stop, step in and stop that. The American citizens shouldn't be allowed to buy the drugs overseas. And the argument during political campaigns, many of them, in fact, in the last few years, was whether or not that argument was simply based on economics, that the drug companies had a right to charge Americans one rate and charge Canadians a different rate, and Americans had no right to travel internationally as a means by which of circumventing the retail price structure. But what the uh, lobbyists for the drug companies said instead was, no, 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 it's not that. That would be wrong. What it is is that if Americans go overseas and take the same drug that's purchased over there, it would not be safe. It would be dangerous for Americans. It's important that because of the way our FDA works that you buy your drugs here, which, of course, begs the question of whether or not the largest pharmaceutical companies in the United States of America are engaging in a subterfuge that could lead to the direct poisoning of citizens in other countries. I mean, what is it that would make the same exact drug dangerous for Americans, but safe for Canadians, when the only real difference, allegedly, the only real difference is the retail price. So I've got some issues with the way this thing works. And, and I look at the Occupy movement, and in lots of ways, I'm sympathetic with the point of view. But here's where perhaps I fall a little bit short, perhaps I'm maybe less, ma less radical than I think. I'm not willing to do a whole lot about it. I'm willing to support the people who I feel have been under attack for doing nothing more than, you know, registering peaceful protest. I think that in New York City, if the um, occupation of that park was an issue, the right way for the government to handle it would be to find an alternative place to incentivize the protesters to exercise, exercise the rights of free speech in a different location, thereby moving them and then dealing with the cleanup of the park, as opposed to sort of an authoritarian, threatening, forced removal approach. But as a moderate, sitting back, sort of watching all this happen, I wonder if I'm putting my money where my mouth is. We're getting very close to Martin Luther King Day, and online – Somebody that I, he's not a friend of mine, I don't know him personally, but he's part of a circle, large circle of friends. People who have a, a similar concept of where Christianity may be falling short, way, the way Christianity has been co-opted by political thought in general, and perhaps conservative political thought in particular. And this person raised the point that maybe this year on Martin Luther King Day, it should be less about the almost cliched, I have a dream speech reference. And then we should dig a little bit deeper into the archives of what uh, the Reverend King had to say. And he suggested that we look at something called Letter from a Birmingham Jail, 1963. Since I wanted to talk about civil rights legislation today or soon, and Martin Luther King weekend seemed like a pretty good time to do that, I took him up on his challenge. And I went online and tracked down the letter and read the letter and decided, yeah, he's absolutely right. I will take that challenge. I will share some of the words of Martin Luther King today, but I will do it not from a speech, not any speech, but instead from a letter. I'll jump around quite a bit, uh, hit parts and highlights, not, uh, not try in any way to deal with the whole letter. It's a very long, detailed, passionate letter challenging churches in particular that uh, Martin Luther King in jail 
for uh, you know peaceful protest, nonviolent protest against you know segregation in Alabama and Birmingham, in fact, had been arrested. And while he was there, he received a letter from several white members of what we might have called at the time either moderate or liberal clergy, who were criticizing him for being too confrontational, for uh, picking a fight and therefore finding a fight and therefore being unchristian, um, just kind of. You know, leveling their concerns that they're they're all in favor of equal rights for blacks and whites, but why do you have to do it this way? Why do you have to do it now? Won't this just take care of itself over time? Shouldn't we be speaking instead of demonstrating? Those, those sort of kind of approaches, which you get the impression from this letter that at some point, King might have decided that the letter was essentially the whispers of Satan in his ear, tempting him in a way not unlike the temptation that Jesus uh, experienced in the wilderness in Matthew chapter four, you know, why don't you just wait? Why don't you just do it this way? You know, you can have more of our support if you do this, that sort of talk. And the one thing is I kind of read through this letter that jumps out at me. And if I do a good job, maybe it'll jump out at you too, is how much King's speaking style comes through, even when he's not writing something that he ever intends to read aloud, that, you know, you've got somebody who's speaking with passion and is a very talented writer. If even the grocery list that they write, you know, read like they should be read, I guess would be the way I'd put that. So what I want us to do, especially those people who are listening, who are like me, you're moderates, politically aligned with Martin Luther King on the question of black rights and kind of extend it a little bit and say, yeah, we're, we're a few decades later now. This uh, letter is you know coming up on 50 years old. And instead, let's think in terms of where we stand on the question of, of gay rights. Should a homosexual couple be allowed to adopt children? If they do adopt children, should they be uh, you know, accorded the same parental rights that any other parent has? Should you know, a lesbian be allowed at the deathbed of, of her lover if uh, her partner is that ill? Should somebody have to go through all kinds of hoops to ensure inheritance because the laws are written in such a way that a marital couple would have automatic rights conferred and, and a non-married couple wouldn't? So think in terms of where do we stand on, on those issues? Or to put it another way, is it wrong that we have such a high suicide rate among two particular groups of kids, uh, kids who either have... Uh, been bullied at school because of questions about their sexual orientation. To be honest, questions about their sexual orientation, whether they're true or not. I hope to get to bullying at least a little bit next week. Or people who have been put through a uh, pray away the gay sort of therapy plan. If you look at the numbers there, you'll just look at the real statistics. You'll find the suicide rates there much higher than they are among the common population of uh, even the population of homosexuals in particular. So where do we stand on the issue of gay rights? And what, what do those of us who... Um, who have a moderate point of view here. Are we lukewarm or, or are we radical? Uh, you also could apply it to the way we responded to the Occupy movement or the way we responded to the immigration movement. Any place that there's a major protest where the question is rights, the rights of workers, the rights of citizenship, the rights of <clears throat> freedom to pursue happiness, uh, all those sort of rights. Let's hear what um, Martin Luther King had to say in response to fellow clergy members over the issues of how do you protest injustice. While confined here in the Birmingham City Jail, I came across your recent statement calling our present activities unwise and untimely. You deplore the demonstrations that are presently taking place in Birmingham. 
But I am sorry that your statement did not express a similar concern for the conditions that brought the demonstrations into being. In any nonviolent campaign, there are four basic steps. Collection of the facts to determine whether injustices are alive. Negotiation. Self-purification. And direct action. We have gone through all of these steps in Birmingham. Step aside for a minute and talk about the community-building aspect there. Because King, in his letter, is responding to accusations that he, he jumped into conflict. He jumped into demonstration. And... Um, Perhaps there was a moment, an opportunity there where he could stop and let things simmer down and, and prove once again or see once again whether injustices were still going on. And so what King argues is that no, they, they went through all the steps. They went through a fact-finding opportunity to see if injustices were alive. They had already negotiated with city leaders and with police leaders and with the politicians who were campaigning to take city offices in the future. So he had a pretty good idea of where people stood. People had been given an opportunity to change policy. He even cites an example where uh, businesses promised that they would take down their racially segregating signs, their, uh, their no Negroes allowed signs. And, uh, you know, King and his, his followers gave them six months to do that. And in, in a six-month span of time, the, you know, five, ten-second task of taking a sign off the wall never occurred. So from there, he didn't go straight into direct action. No, he went into a step called that he calls self-purification. I would liken it to what M. Scott Peck refers to as community building. And I've done this myself. I've been part of uh, prison ministry at one point in time where you go and spend three days uh, of sort of intense time with a select, a select group, by and large volunteers, of prison inmates. And you know that three days is not the time commitment. The preparation time is all about getting ready to go in, and that can take weeks and months of self-examination, making certain that there's no untoward motives, uh, that you're able as a Christian to set aside any sense of judgment over what might have led somebody to become incarcerated, because you're there to reach them in the circumstances they're in, not to try to correct it, not to try to fix it, not try to go back in time, and certainly not to try to stand in judgment over it. Because, um, well, that's not what prison ministry is all about. But in this case, you know, King's making sure that his, the people who are going to join him in demonstration were prepared to be able to not strike back. You stop and think about that for a minute. If somebody slaps you in the face, if somebody spits at you, if somebody kicks an old woman standing next to you, it would take a lot of mental preparation, a lot of what I would describe as spiritual discipline to find the way to not be in a mode of retaliation. And that's exactly what King describes. Picking back up with his words, You express a great deal of anxiety over our willingness to break laws. This is certainly a legitimate concern. Since we so diligently urge people to obey the Supreme Court's decision, it is rather strange and paradoxical to find us consciously breaking laws. He then goes on, though, to ask the question of the difference between a just law versus an unjust law. Any law that uplifts human personality is just. Any law that degrades human personality is unjust. All segregation statutes are unjust because segregation distorts the soul and damages the personality. It gives the segregator a false sense of superiority and the segregated a false sense of inferiority. We can never forget that everything Hitler did in Germany was, quote, legal, unquote. And everything the Hungarian freedom fighters did in Hungary was, quote, illegal, unquote. 
It was illegal to aid and comfort a Jew in Hitler's Germany. But I am sure that if I had lived in Germany during that time, I would have aided and comforted my Jewish brothers, even though it was illegal. I must make two honest confessions to you, my Christian and Jewish brothers. First, I must confess that over the last few years, I have been gravely disappointed with the white moderate. I have almost reached the regrettable conclusion that the Negro's great stumbling block in the stride toward freedom is not the white citizen's counselor or the Ku Klux Klaner, but the white moderate, who is more devoted to order than to justice, who prefers a negative peace, which is the absence of tension, to a positive peace, which is the presence of justice, who constantly says, I agree with you in the goal you seek, but I can't agree with you in your methods of direct action who paternalistically feels that he can set the timetable for another man's freedom, who lives by the myth of time, and who constantly advises the Negro to wait until a more convenient season. Shallow understanding from people of goodwill is more frustrating than absolute misunderstanding from people of ill will. Lukewarm acceptance is much more bewildering than outright rejection. In your statement, you asserted that our actions, even though peaceful, must be condemned because they precipitate violence. But can this assertion be logically made? Isn't this like condemning the robbed man because his possession of money precipitated the evil act of robbery? The Negro has many pent-up resentments and latent frustrations. He has to get them out. So let him march sometime. Let him have his prayer pilgrimages to the city hall understand why he must have sit-ins and freedom rides. If his repressed emotions do not come out in these non-violent ways, they will come out in ominous expressions of violence. This is not a threat. It is a fact of history. So I have not said to my people, get rid of your discontent. But I have tried to say that this normal and healthy discontent can be channeled through the creative outlet of non-violent direct action. Now this approach is being dismissed as extremist. I must say that I was initially disappointed in being so categorized. But as I continued to think about this matter, I gradually gained a bit of satisfaction from being considered an extremist. Was not Jesus an extremist in love? Love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Pray for them that despitefully use you. Was not Amos an extremist for justice? Let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like a mighty stream. Was not Paul an extremist for the gospel of Jesus Christ? I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. Was not Thomas Jefferson an extremist? We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. So the question is not whether we will be extremist, but what kind of extremist we will be. Will we be extremists for hate, or will we be extremists for love? Will we be extremists for the preservation of injustice, or will we be extremists for the cause of justice? I had hoped that the white moderate would see this. Maybe I was too optimistic. Let me rush on to mention my other disappointment. I have been disappointed with the white church and its leadership. Of course, there are notable exceptions. But despite these notable exceptions, I must honestly reiterate that I have been disappointed with the church. 
I do not say this as one of those negative critics who can always find something wrong with the church. I say it as a minister of the gospel who loves the church, who was nurtured in its bosom, and who has been sustained by its spiritual blessings, and who will remain true to it as long as the cord of life shall lengthen. I have heard numerous religious leaders of the South call upon their worshipers to comply with a desegregation decision because it is the law. But I have longed to hear white ministers say, follow this decree because integration is morally right and the Negro is your brother. In the midst of blatant injustices inflicted upon the Negro, I have watched white churches stand on the sidelines and merely mouth pious irrelevancies and sanctimonious trivialities. There was a time when the church was very powerful. It was during that period that the early Christians rejoiced when they were deemed worthy to suffer for what they believed in. In those days, the church was not merely a thermometer that recorded the ideas and principles of popular opinion. It was a thermostat that transformed the mores of society. Things are different now. The contemporary church is so often weak, a weak, ineffectual voice with an uncertain sound. It is so often the arch-supporter of the status quo. Far from being disturbed by the presence of the church, the power structure of the average community is consoled by the church's often vocal sanction of things as they are. But the judgment of God is upon the church as never before. If the church of today does not recapture the sacrificial spirit of the early church, it will lose its authentic ring, forfeit the loyalty of millions, and be dismissed as an irrelevant social club with no meaning for the 20th century. The words of Dr. Martin Luther King. It's history. And from about that time, 3500, 3000 BC, until about the American Revolution, the figures, Alexander, Julius, Caesar, and Tecumseh, Woodrow Wilson, can get erected, William the Conqueror, and his Norman, the events. That that whole year, 1066, which led up to the Battle of Hastings, was a pivotal year. The drama. Another one of these successors, behind the backs of everyone else, steals Alexander's body and takes it back to his little territory in Egypt. The deep questions. What the heck happened? at the end of the Bronze Age. It's Hardcore History. Get Hardcore History at dancarlin.com. First, to speak to the question of the church. I'll do it briefly, but I'll do it directly. I'm involved in the leadership of my church. I share Martin Luther King's perspective that the church is important and that it should be supported and that its, its failures and its, its problems are not something to, to walk away from. However... I have seen exactly what he's talking about. Um, the church so often today, interested in the status quo. If you hear an argument in the halls of your average Protestant church today, it is not going to be about injustice in the world. It is not going to be about the method of sharing the gospel. It is going to be about who's allowed in the club and who's not. What clothes they're wearing. What time we worship. What songs we sing. It almost has nothing to do with worship whatsoever. More to the point, though, I'd like to address the issue of the legislation that was you know, not yet in existence. King's writing this letter in 1963. It would be 1964 and beyond that we would see civil rights legislation in America actually pass. And where do we stand today, looking backwards across the decades, on those civil rights rules? Well, we have two minds, as we tend to do as a country. On one hand, 
I think we view them as obvious and we don't see them as controversial and we question why it was a big deal and we we lose sight of what is depicted so often for us in films in a watered down way. If you've seen the um, the recent film, The Help, set in the early 1960s, or if you've seen um, Remember the Titans, which came out a decade earlier and was set in 1971, films like that do not depict the racism of the era as it was. It's watered down. It's nicer. It's more palatable. It's less vitriolic. It's less violent. Its use of terminology is sparing. Um, it tries to get the shock by using the N-word occasionally. If you were to jump back into some of those situations as they really were, you might find the N-word became indistinguishable to you, even as a moderate, because it was so prevalent. And that's just the words that were used. A lot of the actions depicted, the exclusionary tactics, the, the uh, lingering aftermath of Jim Crow laws, in the case of the film set in the 1970s, or the, the still existence of those laws uh, as a fact of life in society in films depicted in the 1960s and earlier. That's the way it was. But how often do you know, white church people go to films like that and leave the cinema-going experience self-righteously satisfied that what they're seeing on film is not an indictment of the way we used to be, but on some level a praise for a problem that quote-unquote we fixed? Well, I've spoken before about the you know, politics of oppressed minorities and whether or not racism has been solved in our society. I shared at length in one uh, episode about my personal experiences encountering racism throughout my lifetime. I won't go there again. Instead, what I'd like to do is take a political look back at the Civil Rights Acts in the 1960s and also the constitutional amendments passed in the aftermath of the Civil War, the Reconstruction Amendments. And I want to make an argument that there's a lot of people, particularly those on the political right in America today, who view those Civil Rights Acts and those constitutional amendments as controversial. And what does it say about us if we view those basic legislations and the rules entailed there as controversial? Well, first, just in case anybody's doubting me, I want to read a story that was printed earlier this year, quoting Republican presidential candidate Ron Paul, uh, the senator from Texas, is frankly viewed as a libertarian, but truthfully, being a libertarian in this particular crop of Republican political candidates puts you less on the far right, at least on some social issues, and more in the middle. But and there was an interesting article about you know Paul defending himself against accusations that there's been some racism and homophobia in his past. And specifically, his criticisms of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. Paul has said that it, quote, undermined the concept of liberty and destroyed the principles of private property and private choices. If you try to improve relationships by forcing and telling people what they can't do, and you ignore and undermine the principles of liberty, then the government can come into our bedrooms. This was Paul speaking to Candy Crowley on CNN's State of the Union, requoting, and that's exactly what has happened. Look at what's happened with the Patriot Act. They can come into our houses, our bedrooms, our businesses, and it was started back then. Paul's point of view is the Civil Rights Act, which repealed notorious Jim Crow laws and forced schools, bathrooms, buses, and businesses to desegregate. By banning employment discrimination, it was also uh, overstepping, putting the government in charge of decisions, where Ron Paul would have expected that the citizens, the citizens should have done the right thing anyway, that what you needed to do was change the hearts of citizens. 
Now, this is an argument that I've made. I've made in print in a blog on the Inappropriate Conversations website that on the issue of gay rights or particularly gay marriage sounds a lot like this. I find that to be a little bit disturbing, to be honest with you. But in this case, I'm not going to be opposed to whatever comes around legislatively. I supported the Supreme Court decision, Lawrence v. Texas, for example. But the other end of it is, what does it mean for us to get on board with Ron Paul's perspective that perhaps the Civil Rights Act of 1964 overstepped its bounds and was an example of government getting ahead of the hearts and minds of its citizens? What if the hearts and minds of those citizens, in some ways, didn't change then, hadn't changed before, weren't going to change, and still in 2012 haven't yet changed? At what point do we have legislation that due to its political ideology, not necessarily the content of its provisions, is viewed as controversial? At what point did we have no choice but to move forward, whether the citizens of certain parts of our nation, maybe large parts of our nation, were on board or not? What's so controversial about the Civil Rights Acts of 1964? Well, using Wikipedia, I just want to kind of quickly go through some of the provisions. These civil rights laws barred unequal application of voter registration requirements. So you could no longer have one standard for minorities and another standard for white people. It outlawed discrimination based on race, color, religion, national origin, in your ability to stay at a hotel, eat at a restaurant, go to a movie theater, you know, just do business. It prohibited state and municipal governments from denying access to public facilities on the grounds of race, color, religion, etc. Yeah, so these are some of the these are some of the provisions that are viewed even today by some people as being controversial. Well, you know, a law passed in our lifetime, at least in my lifetime, is one thing. What about the, you know, what about the constitutional amendments? Surely at some point the constitutional amendments that ended slavery and responded to the challenges that came after the Civil War. Certainly those are fixed in place, right? Think if you listen to a lot of American conservative talk radio, I think you're going to find that there's a lot of people who have a lot of issues still, more than 140 years later, with the Reconstruction Amendments. Well, what did these amendments do? Well, the 13th Amendment abolished slavery. The 14th Amendment included provisions we sort of take for granted today. Due process equal protection clauses, privileges and immunities clauses, essentially saying that you can't take away people's rights without proving that there is a, that there's a real issue. It can't be based on their race. It can't be based on their economic status or their economic standing or their religion or anything else. The 15th Amendment grants voting rights regardless of race, color, or previous condition of servitude. Okay, so here's the question that's bothered me my entire lifetime. If in 1869 and 1870, the 15th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution, which granted equal voting rights, was proposed and then ratified and then signed into law. Why is it that almost 100 years later, in the early 1960s, we even needed a Voting Rights Act? I guess from a libertarian perspective, it would make sense for a candidate like Ron Paul to desire that the people would drive the change in society and not, you know, laws that could be used in the government in ways that may not have been may not have been ideal or may not have been originally intended. But the bottom line is, if there are people today who are looking back on the laws passed in the 1960s and saying that they're regrettable, 
that they don't think that people should have equal opportunity in employment and that uh, an employer shouldn't be forced to be deferential toward the religious views of certain employees, um, that there may be cases where it's the religious beliefs of, of one person may lead them to want to exclude or to, uh, to deny um, certain rights and privileges to employees. All this sort of talk we're hearing actually turns my stomach. And it makes me feel bad about the fact that for most of my lifetime, I've been silent or even confused or unaware of the issue that the same rights conferred in certain civil rights legislation in the 1960s were also conferred a century earlier in the 1870s. And what does it say about those intervening years? What does it say about Martin Luther King talking about a spirit of discontent living among the black members of society? Of course, right? So to be a radical moderate is to not be indifferent to those things. It doesn't mean that I have to be out on the streets occupying to demand that you know, people who've received huge government handouts do better with it. And that I might be more passionate about the person whose government handout was millions or billions of dollars than I am about somebody whose government handout was for, you know, $1,400. I think we've got some things backwards. It doesn't mean I have to protest it, but I do need to speak to it. I do need to get behind it. I do need to have a point of view about it. And if somebody expresses an opinion that I disagree with or that I'd rather not have to deal with, I can do a little bit better than sending that person an email saying, don't talk to me anymore. I don't want to have to think about your ideas. I don't want to have to think about any ideas that are different from my own. Without having done just a ton of research, it's probably fair to say that I regard Martin Luther King as a potential different drummer. Certainly has had a lot to say in the 1960s at a crucial time in history that apply even to this day in ways that my worry, of course, and one of the reasons perhaps I haven't named him as a different drummer, is I worry whether he would hit the issues of our time with the same point of view. But I think it's important to let him live within his own time and place. The other problem, of course, is there are certain things in his personal life which don't model behavior that I would want to emulate, but I've named different drummers about whom I've said that before, and that also is a, is a pretty good description of today's different drummer, Billie Holiday. Billie Holiday lived her life in a way that, to me, qualifies as a radical moderate. It's not that she was actively involved in political issues. She wasn't a protester. She was a jazz singer, but she lived her life in such a way that she said what I would consider to be uncompromising principles, principles that I did not find to be too far to one extreme or the other, but that she lived them extremely. Uh, the number one thing I want to give her credit for is being really the first significant jazz singer of African-American descent to tour on a big band in a formal concert tour in the American South. She didn't always deal with it with a great deal of dignity and grace because she wasn't conferred the dignity she deserved by her audiences more often than not. That um, news stories, depending on which, which angle you look at them from, could easily describe some of the concerts that she performed in the South as being an example of a hot-headed, hot-tempered, angry woman on stage with the band, or sometimes not even on stage with the band. Because in some of these venues, the band would be allowed on stage and she would have to sing from the corner because black people weren't allowed on the same stage with white people. The black woman wasn't allowed on the white man's stage. But I think you could also tell that same story from a different perspective. 
that how many names do you get called by the audience before it's okay to respond? How much other cheek do we ask someone to turn who doesn't have, perhaps, education and nonviolent retribution that you know, Martin Luther King received? So, no, I, I appreciate her, her bravery and, in some ways, her ferocious defense of who she was as a singer, as a musician, as a person. I got to give it up for that. But the other thing about Billie Holiday that I think will stand for all time is her choice of songs. We hear music like God Bless the Child. Sometimes I think we lose sight of the fact that Billie Holiday is one of the lyricists and not, not just the singer. Not just the singer, but also the songwriter. That she contributed to a, a form of music that at the time was both the high end of popular art and art itself. We today look back on Billie Holiday's music, and it wouldn't surprise me if some people were to suggest that, well, she's an easy listening singer. She's a torch singer. She's a crooner. She's the equivalent of Rosemary Clooney, or maybe even the equivalent of Perry Como. That's absolutely not true. Um, for me, she's in every conceivable way a jazz singer, and a jazz singer at the time that the style of jazz itself was converting from the big band style that was actually the radio and top 40 hits of its day to the era, the era after that, where jazz really has now become you know, somewhat of a classic American musical art form and not so much uh, you know, quote-unquote pop. So she was there at the time that it was pop, at the time that you could go on a music tour and attract enough of a crowd that you could attract enough racists in the crowd that the color of your skin might be more important to certain audiences than, than the music that you performed. And yet at the same time, endured and persevered past that to the point where if we think of our, our estimations of Ella Fitzgerald over time, Billie Holiday, uh, short of the, uh, the dying young, which she did, um, was part of that same transformation to where jazz today has more reverence, perhaps, than you know, pop or rock or dance music does. And Billie Holiday had a lot to do with giving it the credibility that it needed to make that transition. I don't remember the name of the television show, but a few years ago, I was watching a TV show on uh, MTV, I'm, I'm guessing, MTV VH1, something like that. One of the music channels on cable. And uh, Henry Rollins was hosting a program. And basically, it's a program where this leader of one of the seminal American punk bands in Black Flag, who made a transition into hardcore and rock music in the Rollins band, and then made a transition into being part of the speaker circuit and was a, a really a sought-after ticket in the spoken word venue and now was hosting this TV show. So that's why Henry Rollins, I like it. I'm willing to listen to this. And the other thing was that it was about compiling a list. So you'd have a few guests together. They would have a specific topic, usually something music or movies or pop culture, and they would discuss it. And when they were done, they would put together a list, uh, something like a top five or whatever. And the one show that I remember uh, is really being a, a seminal moment for me and reassessing Billie Holiday. To me, at that point in time, Billie Holiday was the Diana Ross film, Lady Sings the Blues. If I was most likely to come up with one song off the top of my head, it would be more likely to be Summertime or Lover Come Back to Me than God Bless the Child and certainly not Strange Fruit. But it was on this show, Picking the Greatest Protest Songs of All Time, where you've got you know, classic 1960s Vietnam protest music, the late 70s, early 80s, American and British punk protest movement, standing right up there side by side with other songs from other eras that I had never even considered as protest songs before. And if not the winner of that list of top five, the one that endured in my memory certainly was Strange Fruit. Now, it's been said, and it's right, 
that Strange Fruit was not uh, a Billie Holiday song in the sense that she's both the songwriter and the singer. It was not a song sung exclusively by Billie Holiday. But it's very reasonable for us to think of it as being her song because it's a song that she made famous. Based on a poem written by Abel Mirapol, and the lyrics go something like this. Southern trees bear a strange fruit, blood on the leaves and blood on the root. Black bodies swinging in the southern breeze, strange fruit hanging from the poplar trees. You get a sense from the lyric that this is a um, third-person perspective, a description of something that the writer himself is you know, strongly denouncing. And from Holiday's presentation, there's both a sense of outrage and irony that provide an emotional distance that allow you not to react to the anger in the in the voice. Um, something that was again a criticism of Billie Holiday's tours in the American South, where her anger would somehow be the the lasting memory of certain performances, but instead confronting face to face a moderate, objective, intellectual perspective on something that is so clearly wrong but not being indifferent to it. Not saying, don't show me that picture, it's ugly. Don't give me a response to that email because I was happier with the picture I had before. But no, saying, here's a problem. I dare you to fix it. If you had told me that going into that show that I watched, that Billie Holiday would even be mentioned in a list of the greatest protest songs ever written, I, in my, you know, teens and early 20s, would not have had a clue. But I would have been wrong. One of the greatest radical moderate voices for change in the history of music is Billie Holiday, in particular, the song Strange Fruit. And it came at a time when I think a lot of people in America, a lot of people, at least in white, middle class, insulated America, would have distanced themselves from the memory of lynching. That if you'd come in and said, hey, lynching was real, it occurred, there are pictures of it, there are songs about it, would have been in, in a lot of denial would have been indifferent in their centrism. The key to being a radical moderate is to destroy that indifference. Thanks for listening to this inappropriate conversation. If you'd like to put some dialogue into this yourself, I can be reached at IC underscore Greg at hotmail.com and show notes are enabled at the Podbean website inappropriateconversations.podbean.com Thanks for listening.
music by Kevin McLeod.